A very warm welcome to all our listeners on cliffcentral.com. You are listening to Professor David Block, and the program is entitled Looking Up with David Block. Some contact details, please feel free to reach me today. A most exciting lineup we have for you. The direct telephone number is 0861-555-189. That's 0861-555-189. The Twitter handle is at cliffcentral.com. Instagram, cliffcentral. Facebook, cliffcentral. And the WeChat ID also, cliffcentral. My Twitter handle is at starrygalaxyman. At Starry Galaxy Man. And if you'd like to contact me via my webpage, it's www.davidblock.co.za. It is an extreme pleasure today on cliffcentral.com to have as our guest the Vice Chancellor of the University of Advertisement in Johannesburg, Professor. Adam Habib, whom I believe we have on the line right now. Welcome to you, Adam. Not there yet. Uh, Professor Habib is not quite online yet, but what we'll be discussing, of course, is the landscape of South African universities. I think each one of us as parents has got dreams for our children, and those dreams include helping to ignite their candles. Plutarch said that the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be lit. Allow me to repeat that again. Plutarch said the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be lit. And I suppose that the central theme on my cliffcentral.com broadcast every weekday, every day, every Tuesday rather, is... How do we actually ignite our very passions? And I want to chat to our Vice-Chancellor, Professor Adam Habib, about the very landscape of South African universities. For example, is it necessary to send our children, if they have a certain dream or passion, to Harvard University, or to Caltech, or to Princeton University, or to Yale University? Uh, these are crucial questions, or should our children stay on in the land of South Africa? And so I had decided that there is certainly no one better within this country to answer these sorts of questions than Professor Habib. While we wait for him to uh, arrive at his office desk, I do want to stress that one always does tend to feel that going overseas has got definite advantages for lighting one's passion. For example, one might think of the crime scenario. One might think of the very uh, level, standards of level of uh, lectureship. Is it better for one of one's students to actually participate at some of the great giant universities such as Cambridge University or Oxford University? How well I remember Uh, lecturing at Cambridge University and just being steeped in history, walking past these gargantuan buildings with their creepers, with their ferns, and there's just this ethos of Paul Dirac and other great giants, uh, you know, having lectured to one in the past. It is just simply uh, steeped in academic history, in pioneerism. It is uh, cut with a cloth of the very first ilk. And so questions we will be discussing with Professor Habib, our Vice-Chancellor, today at the University of the Witwatersrand, are the landscapes of South African universities. Do we need to necessarily travel abroad? His views on family, his views on leadership, his visions for Africa and South Africa, how to attract some of the legendary giants. Well, Professor David Block, I'm sorry to interrupt your show, but I <laughs> thought I'd pop in while I was here. And, Thank and, you, uh, Gary. And to get chatting, because I know we, we're trying to get Professor Habib. Apparently, he's in a meeting, but he'll be on the phone in a moment or two. I actually had him on my show a while ago, yes. and um, he was talking about how 
Vitz is is how well Vitz is doing in terms mm-hmm. of of growing its masters and postgraduate yes. numbers. Yes. It's, it's really trying to be one of those universities that focuses on the very summit of, yes. of, of good education. Absolutely, Gareth. And the important thing there, the very important point that you've raised, is that he's trying to attract some of the very best scientists in South Africa and from overseas to Johannesburg, to Wits University. And the way this works is as follows. Scientists are rated by their international peers. So in other words, it's not a local procedure, it's a global procedure. So in other words, it's signed Professor A uh, puts in to be rated. And then you get uh, peer A, B, C, D and E from Harvard or Yale or Caltech and so on to rate you. And then based on those ratings, you are assigned the A is the best or a B or a C and thus forth. Have you been rated, He's I am in the process. I've oh, never, okay. I've never ever uh, needed <laughs> to be rated, Gareth. But uh, certainly at the age of 60 now, they've said to me, Prof, we think it is time that you do um, consider being rated because if you're not rated, it's very hard to carry on past the 65th year. And so what Adam is doing, Professor Habib, is he's trying to attract dozens of A-rated scientists to Wits University. Uh, this is a budget which involves millions upon millions of rands. But what it will really mean is that to our postgrads, Gareth, uh, these people will be exposed, our MSc or PhD students, to legendary giants in the field. And I think that is absolutely awesome in this country to think that A-rated scientists cut of the very top path will actually be able to uh, sit at the feet of these giants. Now, short of, of cutting your, your show to the point, <laughs> you, you, you interviewed a while ago Clem Sunter. Yes. I thought it was fascinating. And he said, he said some very positive things. He said some worrying things too. But there are obviously things we need to be concerned about in any country in mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. But I think you've almost answered your own question in this because you've just said that they're going to attract the best scientists and yes. the best lecturers in, yes. in the world yes. to it so that people who want to study can study here without having to leave the country. I think that's a very, that's a very optimistic approach, and I think it's probably uh, a good reason to hang around. Gareth, you know, it's one of the few reasons, really, to hang around. Because as Clem Sunter said, there's, and that was very worrying when he said that to me, there's a 25% chance that South Africa could head toward a failed state. But the good news is that there's a 75% chance still that we'll actually succeed. And uh, given that Clem said that there's a 75% chance to succeed, I think that that's just simply um, awesome. Because what it really means, Gareth, is that if we do things right, we will succeed. If we do not do anything, we will become a failed state as Clem Sunter said. And uh, I think this is absolutely critical, Gareth. Thank you, Prof. Thank you so much. Uh, Today, it's my great pleasure and privilege to welcome not only one of South Africa's greatest political scientists to central stage, but one of the world's most highly respected political scientists, Professor Adam Habib, the Vice-Chancellor at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. You are listening to Professor David Block. The program is entitled Looking Up with David Block. Adam, it is a singular joy to know that you are finally with me. Welcome. Thank you very much, David. I'm sorry I'm late. We were, we were concerned that briefly the Habib family had emigrated to Pluto but we were very relieved that uh, you are still on terra firma. Now, Adam, uh, just to kick off, uh, the landscape of South African universities is something which, of course, is of central concern to all our listeners. Uh, one thinks of students uh, wanting to uh, go overseas, for example, to Harvard or to Princeton or to Yale University or to Cambridge or to Oxford and so on, I'm reminded, Adam, of a very famous quote, which you'd know well, by Marcel Proust, saying, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, 
but in having new eyes. And I believe that you have come to Wits to give us a pair of new eyes. I sincerely believe that. Please lead us through for our listeners how you feel South African universities compare on the global stage. So, I, you know, I just had a conversation with City Press earlier on, uh, and one of the things that we were talking about was the quality of our graduates from our university. Yes. And I was saying to them that if you go to uh, Boston, I went uh, about a year ago, I was in Boston to speak to our alumni. Yes. And in the middle of Boston, in a, bid, uh, in a, a blizzardy evening, we called an alumni meeting and had about a hundred uh, South Africans that were in the middle of Boston, that were working yes. in Boston, about 70 to 80 percent of them were in the medical fraternity of one kind or the other. Yes. Uh, and I was, I was a little quite sad that we had lost so many of our graduates. By the way, not only in the 70s and 80s, including in the 90s and in the 2000s. And what was, I was sad that we had lost so many to Boston. Absolutely. On the other hand, the fact that they are working in public health facilities in Boston Yes. It's a sign that the value of our graduates is appreciated by other countries. Yes. And and if you go to London, if you go to China, you go to India, you go to Paris, you go to Canada, the same thing you'll find mm-hmm. amongst our engineers, mm-hmm. amongst our doctors, mm-hmm. amongst our scientists at multiple levels. So yes. I think that we do ourselves a disservice when we think that South African universities are not quality-driven. I think we're producing some of the the, the best graduates yes. that one can imagine. Yes. I think, however, we do have big challenges. Yes. I think that our universities are not of equal quality. Mm-hmm. I think that we do not invest in our universities appropriately. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Minister of Higher Education did a study last year in which, which was chaired by the Deputy President, I might add, Yes. And that found that we uh, underinvested in the university mm. by about 14 billion rand, 15 mm. billion rand. Mm. That's a tragedy yes. for the government that is committed to producing more graduates and committed to producing uh, a knowledge-based economy. Yes. Uh, so I think we've, we, we have a debate about transformation, and I think that's important. But we don't understand what that means and how do we ground that. Yes in a more cosmopolitan world and in a world yes. that is uh, uh, tied to ensuring that we produce quality graduates. I think we have to have hard debates about this. Uh, I do think, however, and my, my children are at the, at the stage when they will go to university. Yes. I am convinced that the top end of the South African university spectrum produces some of the best graduates yes. in the world. And I think it will continue to do so. Now, Adam, of course... Uh, we are very well aware, as you say, that we produce absolutely top-class graduates. I've met some in the Boston area, Harvard, where I often visit. But what I'd like to ask you is this. We also need to retain a certain number of our graduates at university to enable them to mentor our most precious leaders of tomorrow, entering at the first, second, and third year, and then honors and so forth. Uh, how do you personally believe, uh, wearing your your hat as Vice-Chancellor of the University of the Witwatersrand, how do you personally believe one can avoid a brain drain, which has certainly occurred, for example, whenever I visit Australia? So I, th- I do think there's, there's two ways that we have to do this. I think the first is where we have quality professors, we have to retain them. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to retain them, we need to do a couple of things. We need to pay them adequately. Mm-hmm. We may need to create an enabling environment where they are appreciated, that they like being in the university, yes. and then they must be able to afford what I call, a soci- they must be in a society which they don't continuously pretend in. Yes. Those three things, if you don't do that, we fix them, yes. you're never going to retain no. your top talent. No. Uh, so with addressing them, we're addressing the remuneration at a certain level. Mm-hmm. In the enabling environment, we're not doing enough mm. because if you speak to a professor today, there are too many demands on monitoring. There are too many demands to fill administrative forms. Yes. You, you spend too little time doing the kinds of teaching and research that yes. you need to be doing. Yes. And so the environment is not as enabling 
as it used to be. And that many of them lived, are worried. They're worried about violent crime. They're worried about the stability of the society. And so for me, if we want to retain these people, yes. then we have to address those three things. Yes. On the opposite end, however, I also think we need to create a pipeline. Yes. A new group of people mm-hmm. coming through the system mm-hmm. that will sustain the system. Yes. And that means we're providing, we need to provide scholarships because you can't be good professors. Yes. If you're not, if you don't have good senior lecturers and lecturers. Exactly. You can't have mm-hmm. good senior lecturers and mm-hmm. lecturers mm-hmm. if you don't have good master students and PhD mm-hmm. students. Mm-hmm. And so we need to create the pipeline, and that requires scholarships that we need to provide. Yes. Then we need to provide openings in our university system to employ these people. Yes. And then give them an enabling environment so that they eventually can become the professors of tomorrow. Yes. And if we don't address this at the pipeline level. Mm-hmm. And at the retention level, mm-hmm. we're never going to succeed mm-hmm. in keeping our universities well-class. Now, um, my guest on Looking Up with David Block today is the legendary Professor Adam Habib, who I regard as one of the world's really legendary foremost political scientists. And certainly having him at Wits University is an experience which I personally cannot adequately describe He comes with new vision. He comes with new leadership. He comes with awesome new ideas. And, Adam, I'd just like to ask you, you've just mentioned that the government is perhaps under-investing by something like 14 billion rand or so on. How can one actually change, do you believe, the perception of government to actually feed in a lot more a financial flow? Because, after all, you've cut the nerve here is that if you're going to be paid exit university Y and uh, another salary, a higher one at another university, you'll clearly end up there. So how does one address this pay issue and then the issue of this gross underinvestment by government? Well, you know, at one level, uh, I think it's important to understand that uh, some of our institutions are beginning to pay. So, for instance, on the top end of our system, we're beginning to... Uh, address the issue of salaries and make our salaries more competitive. Yes. Uh, we've also, in our negotiations with the unions at Wits, at least, have committed to being one of the better paying uh, universities in the mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. And so we are taking that very seriously in our negotiations and planning. Mm-hmm. Now, it comes with hard choices. It yes. means we have to cut elsewhere. Yes. But we think having a well-remunerated academy is important for achieving yes. our overall goals, and therefore we're doing that. The second thing is, I think we need a very serious conversation with government. Yes. And I see, I said this earlier on to the city press, that my problem is that government wants a world-class education system, mm-hmm. but it's never prepared to pay for it. Yes. It's never prepared to make the hard choices that are required to undertake that investment. Yes, absolutely. And, 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 and it's going to have to make those choices. We're going to have to have a... Uh, we are going to have to have a hard conversation with the deputy president. The president, you want to be based, you want to be a knowledge-based economy. Yes. Well, you can't be a knowledge-based economy if you don't have high production of of skills and you don't have high production of research. It doesn't work. Absolutely. And high production of skills and research is going to require massive investments into the university system. Yes. At the moment, we spend less than one percent of GDP. Yes. On research. That's incredible. If you go to South Korea, they spend more than 3% mm-hmm. of GDP. Mm-hmm. Now, if we're serious, if we're really serious about who we want to be yes. and about being world-class and a knowledge-based economy, yes. then we're going to have to have a very serious conversation, both at the corporate elite amongst those CEOs, CEOs on the JSC yes. and amongst some of those ministers at the cabinet. Yes. Because at the moment, they treat the university as if it's another factory. Yes. If you need the same skill sets, we have the same transformation targets, we have all of the same things, as if this is a normal institution. Yes. I want to say clearly, yes. a university is a very, very special uh, institution. Absolutely. I couldn't and it agree has more. Be regarded as mm-hmm. That. Mm-hmm. Now, um, my guest today is Professor Adam Abib, Vice Chancellor at the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. And I'd like to ask you, Adam, uh, at universities such as Harvard, the alumni love to give uh, millions of dollars, sometimes a little more, and they love to have 
for example, halls named after them, lecture venues named after them. And so there's a huge, as you know, their funds are in the billions of dollars at some of the Ivy League universities. Now, in South Africa, I've just noted, having been at WITS for over 30 years, that one doesn't have the same culture of giving at that level within South Africa. What do you personally think the reason for that is, Adam? Well, I think that there are two reasons for that. Firstly, I think that part of the reason in the United States there's such a given culture and a philanthropic culture Yes, is because the tax system allows for it. So, for instance, if you you give a billion rand to Harvard, and Harvard is seen, even though it's a private university, is seen... Uh, as the third sector, as an, uh, as an NGO, if you like, yes. then effectively what happens is the person who gives a billion rand yes. can get a tax write-off yes. effectively for a significant amount of that billion rand. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, it makes sense for those citizens to make the investments that they can yes. into the kind of university system, etc. Yes. Uh, and given the fact that the United States is one of the richest societies in the world, mm-hmm. uh, it does have the capital flow mm-hmm. that allows for the kind of big investments. So I think one is, uh, one is the tax system. Yes. The second, I think, is a mind shift. Yes. You know, education, when you give, it's a cool thing mm-hmm. if you give as a major a philanthropist in the U.S., Absolutely. a billion uh, a, a billion rand Absolutely. to a university. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We don't have that same culture. I know. No, the, we don't. I know corporates in South Africa that will spend a hundred million rand. Yes. For a golf tournament. You're right. Golf or but, soccer or whatever. Or yes. soccer, but they will never think about giving a no, hundred no, million no, rand investment. No, no. And I think that that is something that that requires a mind shift. Yes. In South African society. And I just think CEOs are not being particularly imaginative when they, when they think those kinds of things through. Uh, I do think, by the way, that which is fortunate of South African universities, it has a very generous alumni base. Yes. And we have a strong tradition of giving. Yes. Uh, and it, although it's not on the same scale as many of the institutions in the U.S., yes. there is a strong tradition of giving to the large parts of this institution yes. have been built by either corporate donations or uh, individual, private individual philanthropic donations, yes. and that's something that we should be very grateful for. Do you uh, think there would be any uh, chance of you addressing this with um, the, say, Minister of Finance to actually um, in, impregnate within the SAR system uh, a tax relief? Because certainly mindsets are needed. But, I mean, a tax relief comes as a huge advantage. And I wonder if it's actually been addressed at the sort of ministerial levels that you routinely have access to. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm aware that uh, uh, the Treasury has been mindful of this. They are aware of it. In fact, there's been big debates, yes. largely by the South African NGO sector. Yes. Uh, but also... NGOs like Iniotello that interface with universities about trying to get a tax uh, shift. Yes. And there has been some uh, revision of the tax codes yes. that allow for it. Yes. But it's not on the same scale as the U.S. No, no. And therefore, it doesn't have the same dramatic effect. Yes. I also think, by the way, many vice chancellors in South Africa over the last 20 years have missed an enormous opportunity yes. at, at, uh, at getting funding into the university. And that's through the BEEs. Mm-hmm. Many of these BEEs were meant to be broad-based. Yes. If they were meant to be broad-based, then we should have had a BEE system. Uh, uh, then we should have got universities as part of the BEE deal. Yes. We know in the last 10 years, we probably spent close to a trillion rand on, on BEE deals. Yes. If South African universities collectively would have got 10% of that, yes. that would have meant awesome. $100 billion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We could have been turning on mm-hmm. a 5% return rate, mm-hmm. something like $5 billion to $6 billion a year mm-hmm. for investment into the university system. Absolutely. It's something that we missed, mm-hmm. and it's a real tragedy because I think we could have been more imaginative mm-hmm. in the way we approached BEE. Yes. You are listening to Professor David Black interviewing Professor Adam Habeb, our Vice-Chancellor at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. 
You can reach us on telephone 0861-555-189, the Twitter handle at cliffcentral.com, Instagram, cliffcentral, Facebook, cliffcentral, WeChat ID, cliffcentral, and my Twitter handle is at Starry Galaxy Man. Thank you, Paula Brigg, for um, this message. Your show is like a breath of fresh air. Well, there you go, Adam. People are really enjoying what we are saying. There's a question from Kajiso, which is uh, totally unrelated to what we've currently been speaking about. But his question is a very interesting one. Kajiso Masik Koeming. Considering the recent events in the National Assembly and the Gauteng Legislature concerning the EFF, do you think, Professor Habib, that the Speaker Chairperson should be a neutral person in other words, with no political party affiliation, like a retired judge or law professor? You know, if you asked me this question uh, uh, five years ago, I would have said no. And I would have said no because I thought I would have said that it's important for uh, the MPs in the national legislature to choose somebody who could play the role of a more uh, neutral uh, impartial chair. Yes. And I think for a period of time, we did and we're successful in getting some of that mm-hmm. uh, in the South African National Legislature, mm-hmm. particularly under uh, President Mandela. Mm-hmm. I think we've lost that in, 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 in recent years. Mm. And I think the current uh, chair of the National Legislature has not been really great. The Speaker of the Parliament has not been great right. mm-hmm. in acting in an impartial and neutral mm-hmm, manner. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She acts, I think, uh, I, you know, there's not many times that I agree with Julius Malema, mm. but in this one I think he's absolutely right. Mm. She's the Speaker of, uh, of, uh, of the ANC mm, mm. rather than the Speaker of Parliament. Mm. And in this context, I think one has to ask a hard question. Mm-hmm. If the MPs can't choose a neutral, impartial chair, mm-hmm. then we should actually give them one. Mm-hmm. Because I think we're at the point where... If you don't have an impartial neutral chair, then the quality of the debate in the national legislature itself tends to become compromised. Mm. And I think that that's really one of the challenges that are emerging in this regard. Mm. I do think, more broadly, by the way, mm-hmm. that uh, the ANC has to start being careful not to immediately go to the, uh, reflexively go to the defense of the president. Yes. I think the demand yes. that the president must answer the question yes. that the public protector put to her report yes. is a reasonable one. Uh-huh. Any reasonable uh-huh. democratic country would demand that of uh-huh. the president. Uh-huh. And the ANC needs to be very careful that it doesn't blindly defend the president so that ultimately it lands up destroying the very institutions of democracy that he played such an important role in building. So a choice. I think it's fast approaching a choice Mm -hmm. where it's got to make a choice between its president and the the party itself, between its president and the country as a whole. Mm. And I think it's important that the ANC starts having a hard deliberation Mm. on that question Mm. and the choices it needs Mm. to make in this regard. Now, of course, you know the public protector rather well. I know she's been on debate with you at Wits University. Uh, you, are you quite therefore alarmed, Adam, that uh, there's sort of a blindish eye being turned to whatever she's asked in a very humble, sincere way to be addressed? Doesn't this concern you? Because it certainly concerned Clem Santa, whom I had as my guest just a little while ago, is that uh, one has to go the high road, not the low road, the scenario uh, of forward planning. Uh, Clem gave an example of South Africa, 25% chance of being a failed state, in quotes, but 75% of being you know, top class. And Cajesa uh, is just very worried uh, in his questions about this uh, sort of bias towards turning a blind eye to um, you know, the public protector's requests. Yeah, I, look, I think it's outrageous. I think it's not only outrageous with regards to the public protector, I think it's outrageous with regards to the very in- Chapter 9 institutions that are mandated to, to protect the citizenry in this case. Yes. And so, 
you're not only turning a blind eye to the public protector, who I think is somebody who's trying to do a really great job mm-hmm. under very difficult mm-hmm. circumstances, mm-hmm. but what you're also doing is you're denuding the very institutions established by our Constitution yes. at the door of our democracy to protect the citizenry itself. Yes. And that is a tragedy. Because what you're doing is, you know, the ANC and its current batch of MPs mm-hmm. should realize that they carry a heavy mantle. Mm-hmm. They walk in the footsteps mm-hmm. of a great tradition of activists mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. ANC Absolutely. who played a phenomenal role Absolutely. in building a democratic mm-hmm. society. Absolutely. And they must be respectful to that legacy they come from mm-hmm. and not just be blinded by contemporary choices. Mm. They must reflect a little bit on what it means mm. to walk the path mm. of an ANC MP. Mm. And for me, I don't think that people are sufficiently thinking that through. Yes. I think that it's been disastrous that the president doesn't feel he, he's accountable to the, to the citizenry or has to answer for this report. This is a quarter billion rand yes. misappropriation yes. of funds. It's incredible. You should be saying, look, I need to answer for this. Mm-hmm. This is quarter of a billion rand. Mm. It's not mm. a couple mm. of rands here no. a day. No. And no. therefore, in a context of the inequalities of our world, mm-hmm. in a context where we're not funding so much that is necessary, mm-hmm. it's absolutely important that this president and other ministers feel it incumbent that they answer questions that are posed to them in the national legislature mm-hmm. by the representatives mm-hmm. that, uh, that, that the citizenry have chosen. You and know, the fact that the president yes. didn't do that is outrageous. You know, Adam, um, I couldn't really agree more. Uh, I mean, if you as vice-chancellor were sitting uh, and, you know, for example, 10 million rand was misappropriated, You'd certainly be held to account, and you would want to be held to account. Yet, Kajiso's concern is that, uh, you know, there's this sort of blind eye which continuously gets turned, and uh, the, the request of the public protector is just being ignored. And I suppose, having met Nelson Mandela several times, uh, one was always struck by his deep concern for truth to be out, and one is not convinced that this is happening now. No, absolutely. And I think that that's precisely why the leadership of the ANC yes. has to rise to the occasion yes. and make the hard choices that yes. are required in this regard. Now, you are listening to Professor David Block, and I am interviewing uh, one of South Africa's greatest political scientists, uh, an academic who's really highly respected around the globe, Professor Adam Habib. Just to give you an idea of how highly respected Professor Habib is, I was in touch last night with one of the world's largest uh, banks and I was in fact uh, uh, contacting the chairman of that specific bank and I'm not going to mention names. But what was very interesting is I said to this uh, chairman of the bank, I am interviewing Professor Adam Habib today and he just said something like, awesome, I have the greatest respect for him. And I think that speaks volumes. We have another question from uh, uh, Jackson. And this is on a completely different issue, uh, Adam. He wants to know, what are your views, firstly, as VC, and secondly, as a person? What are your views on being gay? Well, I can answer... The question both in, uh, simultaneously, both Thank as you. VC and as a person. Thank you. I think that uh, uh, people are entitled. I mean, uh, our constitution is uh, is utterly clear on this. Yes. That we need to respect people's sexual preferences. Yes. Uh, it's been very... Uh, I think that that was a major progress for this society. Mm-hmm. There are clearly challenges in our society around this question. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do know that gay people uh, are being attacked in parts of our country yes. and in particular communities. This is something that we need to address uh, address uh, carefully. Yes. We need to address it and, and make sure that we begin to bring it under control. 
We do know that in parts of this continent, in fact, the vast majority of governments on this continent mm. do not recognize mm. uh, uh, sexual preferences mm. of their citizens. Mm. And that is just outrageous. We mm. need to be heard on this thing, mm. both with those governments in bilateral and in, 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 the, in the engagements in the African Union mm. around this question. Mm. Mm. Uh, I must say, in part, I'm gratified uh, being at this university because mm-hmm. this has a very strong tradition of respecting gay rights mm-hmm. and it is a very strong uh, movement of students and staff in the institution mm-hmm. in this regard mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so for me this is uh, natural it's 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 part of the very diversity of our society and our world yes and and it's a natural occurrence there's no difference between people's differences around sexual orientation yes. as it is around their racial backgrounds or their yes. gender backgrounds yes. or their class backgrounds or their yes. religious and cultural backgrounds. Yes. 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 We have a question, Adam, from Brad, a thought rather, and he said, the ANC are petrified, I'm quoting now, reading, quote, the ANC are petrified because someone is talking for the people, meaning Malema, and standing up to their mafia organization, unquote. Again, I suppose we've discussed this at some length, but it is a rather interesting way of putting it, even though I'm not wearing any political hat today. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that Malema has begun to play the role of the leader of the opposition. Yes. Uh, by default, rather yes. than be designed, there's yes. clearly questions yes. about his own uh, credibility in this regard. Yes. And sometimes he does make, end up making the most outrageous statements. Yes. But to be honest, on this question, he's begun to hold the state accountable. Yes. And frankly, one yes. of the jobs of the leader of the opposition is to ensure that they are holding the ruling party accountable. Yes. And I cannot think of a more important uh, issue yes. to hold the president accountable than the saga in Nkanza and holding him accountable to pay back the money that the public protector says he should be paying. Yes. Yes, very interesting thought indeed. Adam, I'd like us now uh, in the final sector of the show, if you could describe to us, perhaps, it might be difficult, but to describe to us your leadership style, because all I can say is having joined Vitz in 1984 and having served under many uh, or several vice-chancellors and their deputies, uh, you have certainly just turned the boat upside down, as it were, and given this incredible breath of fresh air, which is now so highly ranked on the global scale. Uh, how would you describe to our listeners your leadership style? Hands on, hands off, I'd love to know more. Well, uh, let me say first, I think, uh, and thank you for some of your remarks. I mean, I must say that firstly, I think institutions, there are always different kinds of leaders. And uh, there's sometimes leaders who lead from the front. There are others who are more reserved and can lead from the back and get people to lead. And they simply uh, operate in the background. Uh, and both kinds of leadership can be important yes. uh, for uh, institutions in different life cycles. Yes. Sometimes you need uh, a vice chancellor that is, or a leader that is more hands-off mm-hmm. uh, and, and maintain a kind of maintenance function in an institution that is running well. Mm-hmm. In other cases, you may very well need a, a leader who's interventionist, yes. who leads and gets yes. their hands dirty, uh, who makes, who has forced to make and enable hard choices to be made yes. because an institution requires that at a particular moment in their, in their life cycle. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that if you look Adverts, which has had great leaders over the last 90, 92, 93 years, mm-hmm. there were different types of leaders. That is true. Uh, in, in that life cycle mm-hmm. of, of the organization. Mm-hmm. My view is I think that Adam Habib is much more hands-on. Mm-hmm. Uh, he leads from the front. Mm-hmm. I'm particularly attracted to the idea, uh, particularly in a university like Wurtz, to, for the institution be at, to be at the forefront of public discourse. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I like to ensure that we create an enabling environment for that. Mm-hmm. I am 
one of the things that I've, you know, my own understanding of, 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 of South Africa suggests that you, if you want to be a leader in South Africa today, you need to understand hard choices that need to be made. Mm-hmm. Because every choice yes. has a consequence. Yes, absolutely. And you, and you need to understand those trade-offs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that you need to understand context. Mm-hmm. That context is absolutely important. If you're running uh, Harvard University or Oxford University or Wits University in 2014, yes. you're going to have to have very different leadership styles in yes. those very institutions absolutely. because the context absolutely. are so very different. So for me, I would describe myself as hands-on, mm-hmm. much more interventionist. Mm-hmm. I wish at a particular point to be less interventionist than I am. Uh, but I do think that at this historical moment, yes. which does require somebody who's prepared to get their hands messy yes. and try to understand how to make sure that emissions policies work yes. or how to get the IT system working yes, or to, put, uh, to address concerns of students and staff mm. because that is important and those challenges need to be addressed. Mm. I said, you know, I previously said to politicians and sometimes to, to leaders of municipality, mm. you can't become a world-class city mm. unless you do the small things correctly. That's unless correct. You make the lights work, That's correct. you cut the grass, mm-hmm. you get mm-hmm. uh, the potholes fixed. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. You can't be a world-class university mm-hmm. if you don't have admissions working, mm-hmm. if you don't have the IT system working, mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. you don't have wireless facilities mm-hmm. working, mm-hmm. if you don't do the simple things properly. Mm-hmm. And for me, in the next couple, two, three years, mm-hmm. we have to make sure that the simple things work. Mm-hmm. Because I do think that to, uh, the bits get some of the big things happening. Yes. Well, but yes. it needs to get some of the small yes. things working if it wants to be well class. You are hearing Professor Adam Habib, Vice Chancellor at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. I am Professor David Block. We are looking up together. Our phone numbers are 0861 My Twitter handle at Starry Galaxy Man. And the Twitter feed here in studio in Ravonia is at cliffcentral.com. Uh, Adam, I'd like to also just reflect for a moment, if I may, on a statement Mr. Mandela once made, which is, of course, very famous now, is that to attend university is a privilege, not a right. Your thoughts on that? So, look, I do think that we need to increase the numbers of our students that are coming out of our um, schooling system and are having some opportunity to move into a postgraduate, a post, a post-secondary education mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. That might mean an FET college. It mm-hmm. might mean a vocational school. Mm-hmm. It might mean a university, or it might mean an, uh, 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 a, a teaching college. Mm-hmm. It, 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 we, what we need to do is have a variety of post-secondary options available. Yes, and that because I think it's important because if you want to succeed as a knowledge-based economy, mm-hmm. then you need people with skill sets that go beyond simply those produced at the school level. Mm-hmm. And for me, having those options is absolutely uh, central if we are going to be successful as a country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Having said that, mm-hmm. I think for the foreseeable future, going to university is going to be a privilege. It is going to be about creating elites. Mm-hmm. And the real trick that we should be interested in is not to stop ourselves from creating elites, but to say that we want to cre- cre- create elites from a variety of sources. Yes. We want poor communities to have the access to creating elites as much yes. as we have rich communities yes. who can create yes. elites. Yes. We want communities that are white and black and yellow and green, yes. Yes. Jewish and uh, Christian yes. and all kinds of, yes. uh, of, of possibilities in Absolutely. between. Yes. Everybody must have the opportunity mm-hmm. to create an elite. Mm-hmm. And our public institutions must try and enable that. Now, Adam, of course, what worries me at this po- juncture is, for example, I have 250 students in first year, and I notice that uh, several of the students, uh, their marks or their matric symbols have somewhat been tampered with because, you know, if somebody comes to Wits with an A, one expects that there should be a certain degree of basic skills and knowledge. Uh, does it not concern you that there's been so much talk about tampering with 
the actual metric symbols being upped or increased? Yeah, I, look, I do think that uh, what, what was happening, and we do know that what was happening was that if you were part of the public schooling system, you were getting an additional couple of points. Yes. Uh, percentage points uh, to enhance your degrees. I think that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do know that as of now, that's no longer going to be the case. Mm-hmm. So there is some reforms that are beginning to already take place. I see. I do think also that we need to get uh, some kind of debate going around what is the pass mark and what is the fail mark. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think even though it's correct that, you, you know, on the 30%, you do not get access to university. Yes. Uh, a bachelorette pass does require 50% aggregate. Yes. Even there, I think that we have to say that somebody coming with a 50% pass rate yes. does not have sufficient skill sets yes. that are required at the university. Yes. Level. And yes. so we're going to have to grapple with that challenge. Yes. And yes. we need to to start getting this right. And we have to start putting pressure on the Department of Education to start getting the primary and secondary yes. education system yes. right. Having said that, mm-hmm. I do think that for the foreseeable future, whether we like it or not, mm-hmm. we're going to have students that are not going to be sufficiently adequately qualified. Yes, this is true. Or adequate mm-hmm. skill set. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to have to start adapting our teaching at the university to address the kind of challenges we confront. Mm -hmm. We have to strike the right balance, however, Mm -hmm. because if we compensate too much, we can undermine the very quality of education itself. And so we have to get the balance right if we're going to achieve the kinds of professionals we want to achieve for the economy and the society we want to build. Mm -hmm. Adam, you know, I'm sure that uh, multitudes of our listeners uh, would be very interested, perhaps, to have an answer to this question, which you may or may not have been asked before. What keeps Adam Habib awake at night? What is your, well, let me not add any more. What keeps Adam Habib awake at night? What do you think about? What is your, what are, what keeps you awake? Well, you know, I mean, what keeps me awake is, uh, can we succeed? Yes. And, you know, we've got some incredible challenges. Yes. But we also got some incredible possibilities. Yes. I think South Africa is in a very special place. Mm-hmm. I think in a lot of ways, ironically, we represent hope in a world that has gone wrong. That's wonderful. I, mean, I, I mm-hmm. think that if you just think about the fact that in 1994, when no one else expected us to pull it off. Yes. That we did. Yes, so absolutely. We we have a special place in the imagination of the world. Mm-hmm. And for me, us getting it right mm-hmm. is, uh, would would have such massive ripple effects around absolutely. the world. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, if we fail, it also has a magnified effect mm-hmm. around the world. And it was captured, I suspect, I don't necessarily always agree with the statistical numbers on it, but it was captured when you suggested that Clem Sunter had said, we have a 35% chance yes. of being world class. Yes. And we have a 25% chance yes. of being a failed state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's exactly what the issue is. Mm-hmm. We can either be a spectacular success mm. or a spectacular failure. Mm. That's profound. And, and for us, it's, it's absolutely essential mm. that we get it right. Mm. And to get it right means hard choices. It means mm-hmm. hard choices by government, mm-hmm. but it also means hard choices by the corporate sector and the CEOs. Mm-hmm. It means hard choices by vice chancellors. Mm-hmm. And it means hard choices by us as a collector. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's absolutely, do we have the courage mm-hmm. to make hard choices? You know, Nelson Mandela in 1993 was struck with the choice. Mm-hmm. When Chris Hani was murdered, mm-hmm. the world, this country could have burned. And he was he was angry, and Chris Hani was like a child to him, like a son to him. Mm. Mm. What does he do? He walks away from the prospect of heightening temperature, mm. of burning this country, mm. and says, mm. "We're going to use this opportunity to make hard choices." Mm. And that's that fundamental decision that changed our mm, society. Mm, mm. And I think that we're at that point again. Mm. When all of us collectively, mm. in the universities, in government, in mm. the private sector, mm. have to make hard choices. Mm-hmm. And we have to 
have the courage to make those hard choices to avoid the spectacular failure mm-hmm. and achieve a world-class solution. Mm-hmm. What is your gut feeling at night when you lie awake and think, you know, will we be a success? What is your, you know, often gut feelings just tell and reveal so much, Adam. Do you feel that the country's willing to make the sort of hard choices needed in the light of what we discussed earlier uh, with Malema and others? Um, hard choices. Are we ready as a nation to make the sort of hard choices a yay is yay and a nay is nay with regard to moving us to a spectacular Look, success. You know, in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm optimistic. If you ask me on balance, I'm optimistic. Yes. And I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic not because I believe that we don't have leaders in our midst who make the wrong choices. I'm sure that we will. Mm-hmm. But as a collective, yes. I think we're beginning to realize that we are approaching a moment where hard choices have to be made. Mm-hmm. You know, I speak to CEOs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we might not always agree, but all of us agree that things cannot continue as usual. Yes. When I speak to cabinet ministers, they, we might not always agree, mm-hmm. but all of them I know that I speak to know that we cannot, it's not, it, it can no longer be business as usual. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that realization is seeping uh, across the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And for me, the hope is, by the way, the young people in our society. Mm-hmm. Because although they're angry and sometimes they react angrily to issues, mm-hmm. when I watch them at Wits University and many other universities in this country, Mm. I see people who are intent on changing the world for the better. Mm. I, you know, I sat in the election circus the other day, mm-hmm. where we were choosing the election circus of the SRC. Mm-hmm. And there were three groups, the PYA, uh, Project W, yes. and the EFS. Yes. And the thing that I was utterly thrilled by was that all three groups, had people across the racial divide, yes. across the religious divide, yes. across the class divide, yes. in all three groups. Yes. And yes, they have differences. Mm-hmm. And yes, they'll debate and fight. Mm-hmm. But the fact that slowly but surely, our society is beginning to non-racialize mm-hmm. is perhaps mm-hmm. the best evidence mm-hmm. that today South Africa is in a far better place than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. You've been listening to Professor Adam Habib, the Vice-Chancellor at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. Adam, it has been a singular honor to have you on our show. It has been amazing to talk to you, to tap into your immense wisdom. And all of us at cliffcentral.com can only wish you at the university a spectacular success. Thank you so much for joining us today as we play out with Enya. Thank you very much, David. Thank you.